Well, thank you to our Bible readers. And uh, now it's my uh, great delight to be able to open God's word to us. Let's pray. Our Father God, um, we thank you for your word and the way that it has inspired people for many, many hundreds of years. Uh, We thank you for the way that it has inspired our high jumper and the way that she's able to to share the difference that you have made in her life. We thank you for her, the beauty of her faith and the inspiration that uh, we see there. And we pray that we too will be inspired by your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Between 1845 and 1852, a blight hit most of the potato crop in Ireland. Although the humble potato only came from South America in the 16th and 17th century, by the mid-19th century it had become the staple of the diet of most Irish people, particularly the poor. The British government that misruled Ireland at the time was largely indifferent to the suffering of the Irish poor. Over one million people died and another million emigrated to Britain and the US and some to Australia. Some of you may be descendants of people who came here because of the failure of the Irish potato crop. Humans have always moved in search of food. That probably explains the original move out of Africa and the reason why Aboriginal people have, uh, first came to Australia. Moving from scarcity to plenty was a feature of indigenous land use and why they were so successful. So we could easily not see anything worrying about Elimelech and his wife and two sons leaving Bethlehem, which means house of bread. We're told there was famine in Israel, so we should expect them to go searching for food. They went to Moab, which is east of Israel in modern-day Jordan. But Elimelech had something else. He had the promises of the Lord God, the promises made to his ancestor Abraham, who himself had wrongly left Israel for Egypt because of famine. And he had the promises made through Moses that with obedience came blessing. That underpinned their relationship with God. So Elimelech was supposed to stay in Israel and rely on his God. God's judgment in this is subtle. The deaths of Elimelech and his two sons are not portrayed as punishment or curse, but clearly it's not the blessing he would have expected if he'd stayed in the promised land and remained obedient to his God. Similarly, nothing too much is made of the two sons marrying women from Moab despite the prohibition on interracial marriages in Deuteronomy 7, which, for the avoidance of doubt, um, applied only to the people of Israel and has never applied to Christians, just in case you're wondering how Carlin and I could marry. But the lack of children and the deaths of the sons again shows a lack of blessing that followed a lack of trust in God. With that introduction, you may well wonder why Alex and I have chosen to spend the next four weeks looking at the four chapters of the Book of Ruth. It was set over 3,000 years ago in the Middle East, 
after the exodus and the conquest of Israel by God's chosen people, and before the time of the kings like Saul and David. It was a time when judges ruled Israel. And if you remember our series on judges a couple of years ago, you'll remember that awful things happened and most of the judges were awful people. We spent most of the time seeing what not to do and looking at what Jesus would teach a thousand years later to see the difference he would make. But here's the delightful thing. The main characters in the book of Ruth, particularly Ruth and an Israelite man called Boaz, are some of the best people we meet in the whole Bible. We thought it would be good to lighten our lives by looking at good people who live well and clearly please God. The theme of the book and this series is from emptiness to fullness. And don't we need that at the moment? It is a story about the mysterious ways of God. It's a story for people who wonder whether a life of integrity is worth it in tough times. And it's a story for people who can't imagine that anything great could ever come of their ordinary lives of faith. It's a refreshing and encouraging book. And I want you to be refreshed and encouraged in this time. There are two other things I like about the book of Ruth. First, we read in Matthew 1.6 that Jesus is a descendant of Ruth and Boaz. So this is part of the story of Jesus. Jesus is the product, indirectly, of disobedient behaviour, an unfaithful departure from Israel and a mixed marriage that God, in his wisdom, uses for good. And that's a recurrent theme in the Bible. Uh, The brothers of Joseph tried to kill him and he was sold into slavery in Egypt. But God saved Jacob and Joseph's brothers and their families by the wisdom and faith of Joseph. And Joseph famously said to his uh, his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And of course, the Jewish leaders and Pilate thought the death of Jesus would put an end to him, But God had bigger and better plans. From that act of evil came the salvation of the world and the certainty of the resurrection and the age to come. So God can bless even when things seem dark and hopeless. And second, related to that, is the question about how God might work with us today. I'm not going to spend any time looking at that today, but we will in the next three weeks. We're told that Elimelech came from Bethlehem, which is about seven kilometres southeast from Jerusalem in a high, dry area. Not a great place to be in a drought. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Marlon and Kilion, left Bethlehem for Moab, where they stayed. Elimelech died and his two sons married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth and lived in Moab for 10 years. There's no mention of children. Then Marlon and Killian died. Naomi is in a desperate state. In those days, a woman needed a man for protection and she had none. She heard things were better in Judah, which is the southern part of Israel around Bethlehem. 
God was restocking Bethlehem, the house of bread. So she starts to return there. But before she gets far, she asks her two daughters-in-law to return to their families in Moab and look for husbands there. It's interesting that the book is called Ruth because we hear more from Naomi than Ruth. Naomi is seen as, a pa- as passive in the decision to leave Israel in the first place and in the marriage of her two daughters. Uh, but now, uh, uh, sorry, the marriage of her two sons to, uh, to Orpah and Ruth. But now she is active and importantly calls on the name of her God. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. We see Naomi's misery. She has nothing to offer her daughters-in-law. She feels that God is against her. But despite all that has happened to her, Naomi has not given up on the Lord. She saw him as a source of good and, and valued him. He will provide for her back in Bethlehem and he will provide new husbands for Ruth and Orpah. And we also see Naomi had not fully taken over the view that prevailed in the Middle East at the time that gods only had limited powers, that each area had its own god. For she clearly expected the Lord, Yahweh, her god, to do good to Orpah and Ruth in Moab. Initially, they both planned to go with Naomi back to Judah. And that also speaks well of Naomi. She had earned their trust and love. Then we have the longest speech in the book, with Naomi explaining why they should not go with her and should go back to their families. She spends a lot of time explaining why she will not be able to provide them with new sons to be their husbands, to show how hard she expects things to be for them if they go back with her to Judah. No man of Israel could be expected to marry a Moabite, and given the culture of the time, they both needed a husband if they were going to be safe and survive. Naomi ends this long speech by saying, It is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She knows that her misfortune follows from the things that have not been done in accordance with God's will, the escape to Moab and the the mixed marriages. But as I said, she has not given up on the Lord. She's bitter at her circumstances, but not bitter at the Lord. And she's prepared to go back to the land of her people and be with her Lord. Orpah chooses to go back to her people, but Ruth clings on to Naomi and speaks one of the most beautiful speeches in the Bible. And I'm with Andrew uh, when we come to that. Uh, This alone is worth the price of admission to our service today. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you.
These are the first words Ruth utters. They are among the most memorable in scripture, beautiful and poetic. She is committing herself fully to Naomi and her God, the Lord. A few speeches match this for courage and the spirituality she expresses. This is already showing extraordinary things about Ruth. She knows the Lord only through the imperfect example of Elimelech, her husband, and Naomi. Given what happened to them, it's hard to think that they gave Ruth a great theological education. But despite that and her current predicament, she chose the Lord. Ruth starts her speech with a plea, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Then a threefold declaration of commitment to Naomi, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And it closes with an oath, invoking the Lord as a witness to her pledge. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Unlike Limelech, who did the natural thing in seeking food in Moab, Ruth does the unnatural thing in refusing to go back to her own land, her people and her gods. She will not forsake or abandon Naomi. And just as she has shared Naomi's grief in the past with the death of her husband and two sons, so she will share whatever comes their way in the future, including their own deaths. In committing to Naomi's God, the Lord, we see a deep commitment to Naomi's people, Israel, and their God, the Lord, or or Yahweh. She is transferring her membership and allegiance from Moab and their god, Chemosh, to Israel and the Lord. In this we see God use the words spoken by a woman to teach men and women throughout the ages about love, commitment and faith. But what is Ruth getting herself in for? As observers, we may hope things go better for her, and they do. She finds someone who models a true faith that is as good as we can see anywhere in the Old Testament. Naomi is left speechless, and we're told the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. The women there exclaim, can this be Naomi? She is not forgotten, but she is unrecognisable. Naomi means the pleasant one. She left as a robust woman in her prime, but she has returned a haggard and destitute old woman, almost a refugee in her own hometown. Naomi disclaims her name. Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me the pleasant one. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? But Naomi does not renounce her God. She has come back in faith, but with a flawed faith. She sees God 
God's hand in her suffering through famine and death. And Ruth is not yet significant compensation for those losses and those lost years. She has a faith without grace. Naomi sees the power of her God and his justice, but not his grace, at least not yet. And we may wonder where the story will lead. We see Naomi in her bitterness and Ruth in her commitment and love. We have no idea of what might lie ahead. The only hint we are given is that they return at the time of the barley harvest, which was the most significant crop in the area at that time. Will the Lord of the harvest bless them with abundance? It's a beautifully crafted beginning to this book. Naomi suffers the consequences of her husband's decisions, losing both him and her husband's. There is a contrast between the limited vision and commitment of Elimelech and the vision or hope of Ruth and her commitment. We feel sorry for Naomi and we feel drawn to Ruth. There are hints of a genuine goodness and loyalty that expresses itself in loving their neighbours more than themselves. Anyone who could utter the words Ruth uttered must capture our attention as we invest ourselves in hoping that things will go well for her. And above all this sits God, the God who brings rain and abundance and life, who is powerful and gracious. And we wonder what he will do in the lives of these two women. Will Naomi's bitterness be overcome? Where will Ruth's love and commitment take her? There are beautiful things ahead for both. There were for Ruth and Naomi, and there are for us. For the one who speaks grace into our lives, Jesus our Saviour, could look back to his ancestor Ruth and see the way that faithfulness would lead to blessing. Shall we pray? Our gracious Lord God, you have worked in the lives of people of faith for millennia. We thank you for preserving this story for us. And may we be encouraged by your faithfulness to people who trust you when things are bleak. May our lives be shaped by commitment and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our next song um, is uh, a song that uh, speaks of uh, one of the most beautiful psalms, Psalm 23, uh, but also uh, will remind you of what it's like when we meet together in our church and hear our musicians. So over to you, Gillian, and our next song. <laughs> 